In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I was singing that last song. It sounded really good. And I was thinking, I am going to amen the preacher. And then I realized I was the preacher. So... You throwing glitter, son? No, I'm not glitter. It's Carter's microphone. Oh, okay. All right. Good deal. I have eight children and about 36 invisible friends in my house. I, I don't know how to feed them all, uh, but anyway, we're making, we're making do. It's good to see you guys this morning. I just, uh, just want to ask you to pray for this service as we go through it, for the next service. Uh, just, you know, the, I don't know if it's the mass thing or if I'm just particularly ornery lately, but it just feels like that the enemy's just trying to muffle and mute things. And uh, so I'm over it. I am ready for God to just break some things up. So um, today we're talking about good times. We're talking about that time Jesus went to church and had a blast. And uh, we're going to look at it in a way that you might not have looked at it before. So we're talking about the temple cleansing. But here's the thing about the temple cleansing. A lot of times when we talk about Jesus cleaning out the temple, uh, we get stuck on Jesus cleaning out the temple. We, we never get past the fact that Jesus cleaned out the temple. In fact, we, we don't, a lot of people don't like that story. A lot of people love it for the wrong reasons. Like, yeah, Jesus kicked some tail and that's what I'm here to do. You know, that kind of mentality. But today we're going to read the whole story in context and, and I, I'm going to show you something that's always been there in the text, and I bet you haven't noticed it, that some of you at least haven't noticed it. But before we get started, we're going to have a little Bible study. <laughs> and so Steve prepped it for us, so we're going to jump right into this idea of the church. When we talk about the church, the Bible uses all these analogies. The temple of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. You have all these metaphors that the Bible's using to capture spiritual realities. Why so many metaphors? Why so many images? Because when you're in the Bible, you're reading, even the apostles are trying to capture supernatural realities and put them into words, which many of them were Greek words or Hebrew words, not English words. And so they're using a lot of metaphors, and Jesus used a lot of metaphors and stories to capture what the kingdom of heaven is like. But what you must understand is we're it's, it's unavoidable that in church we, must, we talk about and we get to talk about spiritual things. And so if, if your faith is completely logical and reasonable, that you're not even moving in faith yet. You're just moving in logic and reason. Because Paul, Peter, John, all those guys are pushing our thinking past the natural into what exists in the eternal. Does that make sense? So when we talk about the church, we're talking about the body of Christ, the temple of God, the bride of Christ. These are analogies to help our finite, unimaginative minds <laughs> capture what we are in Christ. Does that make sense? So let's look at a few scriptures. And I'm going to go with these scriptures in reverse of Paul. Because another thing you should understand, and this is just an aside, but it's an important one, is that the writers of the New Testament were not Americans. They were not Europeans. They were not Westerners in any way. They're writing, all of them, uh, maybe Luke a little less, but all of them are writing from Hebrew mindsets, which are nowhere near as segmented as ours. 
And they often come at logic and reason in the opposite way that Americans do. Meaning that when Paul describes something in every one of his letters, his epistles, he starts with the big idea and then he begins to work his way down. But I am not a Hebrew. And so I always start the opposite. I always start small and try and work my way up. So I'm going to invert Paul's logic a little bit just because it works better for my itty-bitty brain. It doesn't really work that well. Anyway, okay. So, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a price, so you must honor God with your body. All right. Now, is this verse focused on you as an individual or the larger body of the church? Which one's it focused on? Shout it out. Individual? Church. Individual, okay, it's focused on you. You, individually, in 1 Corinthians 6, are um, the, the temple of God. The Holy Spirit inhabits you. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're with me there, right? So, now let's back up, 1 Corinthians 3, because this is where Paul starts. He starts in the big picture. So, who is this one to? Individual or the church, Do you, or the congregation? Do you realize that all of you together are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God lives in you. So you see, church. So I have this, we together are the temple of God. You individually are the temple of God. Does it, are you following it? Now, what is, what is God trying to teach us to this? And how does this relate? So First Peter, he captures another analogy that I really love, and I'll show you why this is so important in just a second. I think this, in fact, this reality is so critical to how we view our world today. 1 Peter 2.5, you are living stones, plural. So let me coach you through this one here. He's capturing the individual and the congregation. You are living stones, plural. That God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So in this analogy that Peter's using, you're a rock. And doesn't that make sense that Peter would call you a living stone because he's the one that Jesus said, you're, you're a rock and on this rock I'll build my church. Makes sense that this was his revelation and he's trying to teach it to us. What's the significance of you and I being living stones? <clears throat> We're going to jump all the way back to Deuteronomy, which I'm sure all of you, it's your favorite book the Old Testament. Just kidding, probably not. Anyway, Deuteronomy 27.5. It is a really fun book once you get the context of it, by the way. Here's the instructions to the children of Israel. Build an altar there to the Lord your God using natural, uncut stones. You must not shape the stones with an iron tool. So, you're the temple of God, the body of Christ, you're living stones, living stones. And the instruction given to Israel is that when you build an altar, you don't shape the stones. You build the stone, the altar with the stones as they are. And you're living stones. What is this telling you? That Christianity is the only thing in the world that takes you as you are and intends to use you as God designed you with your unique gifts and talents. None of you have to be retooled. You just have to be redeemed. Do you understand? 
This is how God does things. And this is the difference between God and everything else. Every political system, every religious system, all of those are like the Tower of Babel that was built out of bricks. The significance of bricks is that bricks are conformed to a set image. Bricks all have to look the same and they have to be uniform or you can't build with them. God says, I don't want you to be bricks. I want you to be what I made you to be. And I will build the structure, the temple of God, out of who I made you to be. You don't have to, you don't have to shave off the edges and be conformed to a popular image. So, we're the temple. Individually, we're the temple congregationally. Only God frees you to be what he designed you to be and called you to be. Every other system will make you conform. Religious systems included. Okay, you with me? There's some value in following Jesus. He's the one who sets you free. Everything else traps you, but Jesus sets you free. Keep that in mind as we're about to walk into this scary story. Scary Jesus. We're going to meet scary Jesus, okay? You're like, Michael, there's no scary Jesus. Okay, all right, here we go. You ready? Matthew 21. Scary Jesus. Jesus entered the temple By the way, I don't have time to go into the background, but this was premeditated. He knew he was going to do it when he walked, before he got there. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. There you go. Scary Jesus. You're like, well, those people were wrong. Well, you're right. However, many of them were just working a job. And what I want you to see is that if you were one of them and you're just trying to feed your family and you're working a money changer table and here comes Jesus, that's scary, right? Here's the thing. People get hung up here. They find justification here for being mean and judgmental and unkind to others. They they find justification here for being unloving. But what happens is they get stuck on this text. See, Jesus cleaned out the temple. See, he did get mad. But then they never read the next verse. They don't think about it anyway. Or they get so shocked by what Jesus did that they're like stuck and they miss the next verse. Verse 13. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Verse 14. Then look what happens. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The temple cleansing wasn't all that happened that day. That's what we need to see. Jesus didn't just go in, make everybody mad, do a mic drop, and run out. Okay? That's not what happened at all. He went into the temple, and he cleansed the temple so that God could show up. The purpose of the temple cleansing was the presence of God. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant, and they asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the Scriptures? By the way, that was a cold-hearted bust right there. Do you even read the Bible, man? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. (laughs) Anyway, so, all right, 
let's, let's find out what's going on here because there's so much here that's rich and, and it's going to encourage you. First of all, I want you to see that God is grace and he's always been grace and love. Always, always. Old Testament, God is a God of grace and love. And here's how we know. Because they're in the temple, but the part of the temple that they're actually in is called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. I don't know if you know that ancient Israelites and Jews, and they may still be to some extent, were very racist against anyone who's not Jewish. Not Israelites. And so here's God telling the chosen people, hey man, I want you to build me a temple, I want you to put it together this way, and I want there to be a place in it for the nations to come to. You see, God's always been a missionary. God is always intended to reach the entire world. Israel was supposed to be his microphone, his megaphone, to proclaim the goodness and the grace of God. And so it makes sense that this God, who loves everyone, has as part of temple worship a place where foreigners, outsiders, can come and learn about God and watch the sacrifices and watch the people in worship and learn that God cares about them. But here's the problem. That's where they set up shop. This racist nation in the court of the, t- the Gentiles is basically robbing these people and profiteering, profiteering off of people. When you came, you had to travel. It's not quite so easy to travel with a goat. Throw them in the wagon or a sheep. Or, it's hard to fly with those things. They, they look at you funny in customs. Then they examine your goat and no one wants that. So what would happen is people would come from outside the area and they would come to the temple to worship. And they would have to buy an animal for sacrifice. Uh, they would have to change their money. Actually, their money was no good. So they were, most people, Rome had power over the world, so most of the money at that time was Roman. And had Caesar's face on it. And so they had to convert it into a, a shekel. And uh, so there were conversion rates. And there were high prices charged for animals, birds, doves, sheep, whatever it was they wanted to sacrifice. So there was this, they were, here's the Gentiles coming into the court of the Gentiles because they want to know about God. They're curious about God. But before they can ever encounter God, they've got to walk through and become victims of corruption, profiteering, and cruelty. The, the picture of God is being totally wrecked. By the children of God. God's people. They're lying about who God is. Right here in the court of the Gentiles. God didn't care about their money, but that's what the message they're sending. You, you got to understand, the method is the message. You, you can't just go around in life and, and say you love people and, and then treat them like dirt. The method that you use to relate to people relays the truth about what you think about people. And it's the same. In this courtyard, Gentiles, people from all over the world are coming to learn about God. And the first thing they have to deal with before they can even get to God is they've got to wade through lies about who God is. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ, he walks into the middle of that, and that is not going to work for him. And the irony here is that the nation of Israel was holding on to a promise that the Messiah was going to come and drive out their enemies. And what really happened was that the Messiah come and drove the Jews out of the court of the Gentiles so the Gentiles could get to God. That's that's hilarious. (laughs) Excuse me. So, 
Jesus enjoyed a lot of things, and that's what this series is about. Jesus enjoyed some things, and he really enjoyed giving people access to God. So every point, we're going to take a lesson, and here's our lesson for this point. Jesus loves giving access to God. You are the temple. If Jesus pulled the driving out the money changers bit in your temple, what would he drive out? What in our lives is lying about who God is? What in us is preventing people of getting to God? And, so, and, and, and do you see here we have a need for Jesus to enter our temple and drive out the garbage so that the miracles can take place, so that the presence can be released? Jesus loves giving people access to God. And so that's our, our first thought. What in us is blocking people's way to God? Is it our sins? Is it our attitudes? Is it our pride? Is it our, our unforgiveness? If people are looking at your life for hope, can they see it? They're looking at my life for hope. Would they find it? You see, that's why Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, he said, you say I'm rich and I have everything I want and I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that's been purified by fire, and then you'll be rich. And also buy white garments from me, so you'll not be shamed by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. You see, our self-sufficiency, our independence from God, our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness, is actually our poverty. It's why that we spend so much of our, our faith draining our, our spiritual energy, worried about whether or not we're worthy for God to do something in our life, worried about all the things in our past, dealing with the shame that keeps coming up. And Jesus has already dealt with that stuff. And he says here in Revelation 3, just like he said in Isaiah 55, come, buy, and eat without money and without price. He's saying, I have everything you need and everything you want. And so if you want to be a life that just evidences hope and, and evidences the presence of God, let Jesus dry out all, drive out all of that self. All that old you. I have a name for old Old me, but I'm not going to tell you because some of you would use it against me. So I won't do that. I almost did. It almost came out, but I'm not going to do it. If you're ready to enjoy the things Jesus enjoys, then let him drive out the things in your heart that don't need to be there. Lesson one. Jesus loved giving access to the Father. Second, Jesus loved restoring people. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. <clears throat> as soon as the distractions were gone, the presence arrived. God showed up when all of those money changers and all those things were driven out. God showed up. Now, I want you to climb into this moment, okay? Maybe just, just see it. Let, God gave you an imagination for many reasons, and this is one of them, so you could see his word. And here's Jesus in the temple, and he's just driven everybody out, and we just saw scary Jesus. But scary Jesus drove out 
the problem and drove out the corruption and drove out the lies. And then scary Jesus became the Jesus you know. The Jesus that was come to me and I will give you rest. The Jesus who was life and healing. And so here's Jesus and then all these people begin to come in. And I'm thinking Jesus is having some fun now. You're in the court of the Gentiles, and here they bring in this blind guy. And they have two people guiding him in through the crowds. And then all of a sudden, he can see. And he doesn't need anybody to help him walk anymore. And now he's dancing as he walks out of the temple. There's another guy that's being carried in, and he's, maybe he's got a, a lame leg or a withered arm. And he comes to Jesus, and bam, the presence of God heals. And now the guy who had the withered arm has a normal arm. The guy whose leg wouldn't work, now it works just fine. And Jesus is having some fun now. Because everybody that's coming in is a victim of the works of Satan. Everybody that's walking in, their life has been destroyed by the corruption and the sin that's in this world. And they're walking in covered in the shadow of death and fear and worry and anxiety. And they come to Jesus and Jesus is life. And he breathes on them and he tells them, commands whatever's wrong with them to go away out of his experience and continual connection with the presence of God. And these people are set free. Set free. Doesn't that sound like a great way to live? If you could just live your life setting people free. You get the weeds out of the garden and the plants flourish. You get the distractions out of the student, and the student will focus. Well, that might be too much to ask for. You get the gossip out of the group, the group will flourish. You get the thieves out, and prayer will multiply. Jesus was having fun restoring people. Have you ever wondered if your prayers could help anybody? I, I know that a lot of you know me well. Some of you don't know me that well at all. Uh, for those of you who don't, I'm just a normal dude. In fact, I'm probably on the low scale of normal. I mean, and, and I've had God answer some amazing prayers in my life. And, and I can't, can't claim any credit because I generally try and pray, pray with other people about those things. But I've just seen God do some stuff because this is what God likes to do. And if there ever came a day in the church of Jesus in America that Christians, normal, everyday Christians, began to realize that God wants to do amazing stuff through me, they might start actually asking God to do amazing stuff. Because I think that's the reason we don't see more miracles, we don't see more healing, we don't see more power. I think we're just afraid to ask. And do you know what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you ask God for a big, hairy, scary miracle? The worst thing that can happen is nothing. Nothing. And I know you're suddenly going, well, no, I might look stupid. Hey, that might be good for you. You might not look as dignified as you think you are anyway, so why not just look stupid? Say, Michael, that's not nice. I'm going to tell you. One thing I've learned about my father is that he loves me. He's not ashamed of me. I'm his son, but he does not mind letting me look stupid. Because what the world thinks is honorable, God thinks is stupid. See? Things are different. And so, Jesus loved restoring people. And I want to remind you that there are things in you 
that can restore people. Ladies, have you ever dealt with anxiety? You don't have to. You can just sit there stoic looking. I'm okay with that. It's good. And then you sit down and you had one of those coffee dates with another Christian sister, or maybe you just bumped into someone at the store, and they shared with you that they also struggle with anxiety, and they leaned into God for that anxiety, and what they said to you helped heal you. Has that ever happened to you? It helped you carry it? You say, that's a simple thing, Michael. That's not a miracle. Nay, nay. I think that's a miracle. I think that's a move of God through a brother or sister to encourage each other. And it's just a simple thing. And all I want to show you is that the things that are broken inside of you and the things that you're ashamed of and the things you're so worried about, what if actually they're your superpower? What if actually those things in you that that are broken and you're ashamed of are something that when Jesus heals them, they're going to heal other people? What, what about, would you consider that's a possibility? Because Jesus loves restoring people. Jesus lives in you. What do you think Jesus wants to do through you? Restore people. And the things in you that the enemy broke, Jesus has remade into victory, and you will set others free. So stop being ashamed. If you need to confess something to God or a brother, then do that and step out of shame and into light and then take that thing about you that you hate and use it to help because Jesus loves to restore. He loves to give people access to the Father and he loves to restore people. And lastly, I want to say that Jesus loves real worship. I might have a little fun here. Just want to, this is cute. This is cute, all right? And I never use the word cute because it's a sin for men. Just kidding. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw the wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. Okay, this is an aside and not part of my point, but if the works of God tick you off, you have a problem. Okay, I'm just throwing that out there. Come back. Okay. The children, that's what I want to focus on. Look at the children in the temple. Kids running around shouting, praise God for the son of David. And they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, I'm going to laugh every time I read that for the rest of my life now. For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. I want you to see this, okay? Blind guy walks in, can't see. He's been led by his wife, walks up to Jesus. Jesus removes the bondage of blindness. And kids are all around because that's what kids do. They're all around. No one's in control. That's just kids. They do their thing. They're running around. Can you see some little six-year-old walk up to the guy who walked in blind, waving their hand to see if he can see, trying to freak him out? Can you see that? Can you see seven, eight-year-old children walk up to the guy whose leg was withered and checking it out and touching it to see that it's whole? Can you see these children just watching Jesus at work? Can you see the wonder in their eyes? They're just, they're impressed with Jesus. Never stop being a child. Never stop being a child. Never stop being impressed at the wonder of what Jesus can do in a life. 
or in a world for that matter. And so these children see what Jesus does, and their estimation of Jesus becomes worship. Praise God for the, the, the Son of David. That is worship. It's honest. It's authentic. Worship is, I have seen God at work, and I am awed. I have seen God do something, and I must say something. And God grant us back that spirit and that heart of children that we can stop dismissing the wonders of God. God is at work in our lives every day. He's speaking into our hearts every moment. God is, is, he is a busy, active God. And, and, it's, and children know that. Adults are like, oh, God doesn't care because we're dumb. Children have a wisdom that we don't. Because they, can, they, they, they see this simple thing, and rather than try and explain it away with logic and reason, they just embrace the fact that Jesus is awesome. That's what worship is, and that's what happens when the house of God becomes a house of prayer. So never stop being a child. In fact, could your faith inspire a child? Does your faith impress children? I don't care if your faith impresses multitudes. I don't care if you have a platform and you, you can speak with eloquence and, and you can share deep truths of God. If children aren't impressed with how much you love Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Think about it, guys. Our love for Jesus should be manifesting and should be pouring out. It should never lose the childlike wonder. And when we awaken and see that we have, we should immediately turn around, run back into the temple. Jesus, drive out whatever the distraction is because I want to live my life in awe of you and what you're doing and who you are. See, Jesus loves and enjoys real worship. Let our worship be real. Let our hope be strong. We're all children, and our praise should fill the temple. Our joy should fill the temple. So, in conclusion, and I rarely conclude. I usually just keep dragging it on and on and on, but I'm trying to change. What's in you that needs to be let go of? What's in me? I've been struggling with this message all week with the same question. What do I need to let go of? What's my distraction? What's, what are the weeds that need to be pulled? What are the distractions that need to be removed? So ask yourself, ask your heart that question. Ask Jesus that question. In fact, let's bow our heads and close our eyes right now. Worship team, why don't you guys come on up? Right now, with your head's bowed and your eyes closed, ask Jesus the question, Lord, what, what needs to be driven out? Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't know if he'll answer me. He already has. Chances are you already know. And so, if you got it, give it to him. Just give it to him. He's, he's here. He's right here with you in this room. Just give it to him. Let him take it. And then, when you give it to him, I want you to have an expectation for the presence of God. Father, I pray that you move in our body. We need a move of God. We don't need to be convinced of things. We don't need ration or reasonable 
processes forward. There's value in those things, but that's not what we need from you. We need a move of God in our lives and in our heart. We need real worship. Father, we long to be a restorer of souls as a, at, at the hand of Jesus. We long to give people access to our Father. I pray, Lord, that you move and work in us to make us even more that temple of God built out of living stones that proclaim and live as priests to connect people from the world we live in to the world we're going to. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's stand together and let's worship.